Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the NH Experience. And on today's show, I have another special guest. This man is all over the NFL. If you need to know what's going on in the NFL, this is the guest to know. He is a reporter, contributor to the NFL Network, also NFL.com. He has worked for such prestigious outlets as ESPN, as well as done some great written work. He's also recently completed a stint with the Atlanta Falcons when it comes to covering them during the preseason. And you've seen him with the great donut display most recently at the Las Vegas Raiders Monday night football game a while back ago. He is the one and only, the man himself, Howard University's own Steve Weiss. What's going on, Steve? How you doing, man? man dick, all is well. I hear Rams practice, man. So uh, you might hear some hip hop going on in the background. That's not, that's not a party in my house. It's a party on a practice field. Hey, man, it's all good. Thank you so much for coming on. First and foremost, I'll just talk about you. You're a successful reporter, successful journalist, obviously. You do a great job covering the league, which is not an easy thing to do. But at what point growing up, how did you grow up? And at what point did you realize I want to be a reporter covering sports, primarily the NFL? Because at one point, you also covered the NBA. Yep. Yeah, no, I always wanted to be a sports reporter. I mean, it's, it's weird. You know, my father, you know, I grew up outside of St. Louis. So my father was in the sales department at the local uh, NBC affiliate. So I was kind of always around the media a little bit. I would go into the studio a lot. Um, but I also wanted to be like the next Bryant Gumble. You know, back then, Bryant Gumble was on NBC doing real sports. And him and Irv Cross were the only two black faces that I saw. And I, where I grew up, it was, you know, predominantly white neighborhood and, and white town and and whatnot. And I'm a, a failed jock. You know, I spent a couple of years at University of Missouri on the football team uh, before I transferred to Howard and uh, stopped playing. But it's something I always wanted to do. I mean, I'm a huge St. Louis baseball Cardinals fan. Sorry, Dodgers fans. Um, but, you know, I would walk down the street, like, pretend I'm calling games. You know, Ozzie Smith flips to Tommy Hurd, turning a double play, you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, as I went through high school, even though I was playing sports all the time, I was on the newspaper staff. Uh, and things like that. So this is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of living my dream because I've been able to kind of be, you know, point A to point B and been real fortunate, but also real focused um, to make sure to pursue what I've always wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, when you look at just the landscape, like you mentioned, the Brian Gumbles, the Earth Crosses the World, and then later on you will see a, a couple of more black faces as far as covering sports. And obviously later on we see a lot of women having the opportunity to cover sports as well. But primarily for you, going to Howard University, how did that shape you and how did that change you as far as the trajectory you were planning on going to when it comes to sports reporting? Well, I mean, it, it changed my life. I mean, first off, transferred from, from a PWI, a predominantly white institution in the University of Missouri, um, to Howard, it was like, okay, whoa. You know, around all these beautiful black people all the time who are highly competitive. Um, that's the thing. A lot of people think HBCUs are less than. Uh, my experience was it was far greater than in terms of socially, in terms of competition with my peers, and in terms of, you know, just being pushed so hard by my teachers. And being in D.C. really helped, you know, because while I was at Howard, I was the sports editor of, you know, the community news newspaper, and then I was the editor-in-chief, but I also got an opportunity to work at the Washington Post, you know, so here I am covering high school football games every Friday, being in a newsroom with Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser and Ken Denlinger and um, Sally Jenkins and all these great people, and then I would cover high school basketball games, and then they liked me, so they kept me on to do some other things, 
And so just getting that experience is something a lot of people don't get. I mean, there's not a major newspaper in Columbia, Missouri, where University of Missouri is. So the fact that me and so many of my peers were able to work, you know, I had, I had students from Boston who were stringers for the Boston Globe or people from San Francisco, stringers for the San Francisco Chronicle. That experience of being in D.C. with the education uh, that we had, of being able to go to conventions where Oprah Winfrey and people like that would speak directly to us, um, it was important. It, it changed my life. And I always say, you know, that period late 80s, I'm old, uh, it, it, made, it made a man out of me because I had to learn to survive in a city which was the murder capital of the United States. Crack was surging. Um, being able to navigate through all of what's happening on the streets, which was happening with the camp on campus, I grew up fast. And again, it, it, it opened my eyes and made a man out of me. You know what? And, and going from Howard University, you graduated, you know, you were working for the, the various, uh, you know, network and, and, and newspaper outlets, I should say. Uh, then you got a chance to cover the NBA. Now, what was that experience like for you covering the NBA? And how did you use that to help you translate into covering later on covering the NFL? Yeah, it, it, it was awesome. So the trajectory when I worked at newspapers in Richmond, Virginia, and then I was at the Miami Herald. And I worked in the Fort Lauderdale Bureau of the Miami Herald. You know, it's about 35, 40 miles north of Miami. Um, with a lot of great people like Judy Batista, who is one of my colleagues now at, at the NFL Network. And I was covering high school sports and doing a lot of other things like national boxing and things like that. So the Dolphins moved their training facility from Dade County, where Miami is, to closer to Fort Lauderdale. So they're like, Steve, why don't you go out there a couple days a week and back up our main beat writer, Armando Salguero? So I was covering the Dolphins for a couple of years. Don Shula's last couple of years and Jimmy Johnson's first year there. Um and in the midst of that, we had a couple of reporters uh, leave. One of them was our NBA writer, um, Amy Shipley, um, who was covering the Miami Heat. And they're like, Steve, we got you got to have you got to have you slide in there. You know, you do a good job. You know how to cover pro teams. We need someone right away because it was in the middle of their season. And so I started covering the Heat. And this is when they were really good, right? It was Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning, Dan Marley and Jamal Mashburn. I mean, they were loaded. But that's when the East had, you know, the Orlando Magic with Shaq and Penny and um, the Knicks, who were their, you know, their big nemesis. And then, of course, Jordan and the Bulls. Um, so, yeah, for so for two and a half years, I covered the Heat during those great times of the Eastern Conference um, of the NBA. And then the Washington Post called. And they said, we've been tracking you. We want you to come cover the NBA here. And I was like, man, for the Miami Heat, which is always in the playoffs, and the Washington Wizards, which nobody thinks about. Ooh. But journalistically, I had to go to the Washington Post. And, um you know, that was a big deal because that's when MJ, Michael Jordan, came out of retirement to be to run basketball operations and and eventually play for the Wizards. So just understanding the magnitude of that job on a daily basis for a team that no one really cared about, that all of a sudden everyone cared about, was significant. Um, and then in 2004, my old assistant sports editor uh, in Miami said, hey, look, I'm going to Atlanta to start the sports section there. I want you to come work for me. Um, you can come down and cover Georgia Tech basketball. And I'll eventually try to get you on the NFL. I was like, ah. But then some other things were happening. And, you know, my wife was like, okay, let's go to Atlanta, see what's up. And um, covered university, ended up covering University of Georgia football for a year, covering a lot of great players, David Pollock, Odell Thurman, Thomas Davis, a lot of those guys. Thomas Brown, now the running backs coach of the L.A. Rams, covered him. Um, and then the Falcons job came open. Um, and Michael Vick's in 05. You know, Michael Vick was king. The Falcons were good. 
Um, just had to come off an NFC Championship game experience, and then from then on, man, it was you know it went through that to the Michael Vick dog fighting trial to the Bobby Petrino quitting on the team midseason, um, to all those big stories. Eventually, having the NFL Network give me a call saying, "Hey, man, we want you to come work for us." Man, that's fantastic. I got to ask you this because you were at a, a, a really, pre, a, I would say, pivotal time where the Atlanta Falcons with, with the Michael Vick experience was everything. Like yep. everybody wants to be Michael Vick. What was that atmosphere like specifically for you just being in that in that space where you see a guy like Michael Vick up close and personal on a day in and day out basis? What was he like and what was that experience like for you? Well, understand what I just kind of said. You know, I was covering the NBA when – Michael Jordan played, right? Then I had to come and cover Michael Jordan as an executive and came back and played in Washington. Nothing, nothing will ever eclipse that. Um, the difference with Michael Vick is the NFL had never seen a player like him, a six-foot quarterback with a laser arm who was the Allen Iverson of the NFL. You know, braids, big baggy white T-shirt, we do the press conferences with the exact cock to the side. So the Georgia Dome... I mean, it was like Luda, you know, everybody. I mean, it was pumping. It was a nightclub atmosphere. They were super exciting to watch. Um, so as a reporter, in terms of dealing with the big personality and the big superstar, that was nothing new to me. But the vibe of this whole kind of hip-hop aura, being in Atlanta, um, on the football vibe, you know, the NFL is so much more king than the NBA, even with Michael Jordan playing, so many more people pay attention to the NFL. That's what was different. And understanding every day that whatever Michael Vick did is what people wanted to hear about. And that's when, fortunately, when he got caught up in the dogfighting stuff, it was as, as big of a story as I've ever been a part of. And that's including the Colin Kaepernick story. And I want to talk to you about that because you do you do some outstanding work with the NFL Network. I mean, we've seen you travel to various camps, to various teams. And then Colin Kaepernick happens. And I, I mean, not just what he does on the field. Obviously, he was a, a, a electric lights out performance away from winning a Super Bowl. Uh, somebody didn't play with the light switch. And then you see him obviously, you know, take a really significant look at himself, look at the country and really make a, a strong statement silently. And you were the person that actually opened up the story as far as giving people eyes to the story. What was that like for you? How much did you catch any backlash for just reporting that story? Because some oftentimes I see reporters, they're just reporting the story and they still catch it as if they made it up. Well, I mean, I caught it from the point that, okay, here's Steve White's a black reporter trying to give shine to a player, bring attention to black issues. But those people are idiots. I mean, I, I disregard mm -hmm. people like that. I mean, the most most of the attention was not paid to me. It was, it was paid to Colin Kaepernick and our NFL teams and everybody was going to react you know, and how dare he trample on the flag. So what it did was it allowed me as a human being and as a reporter to be like, hell, if this 27-year-old kid can risk it all, why can't I speak up on things that I know that are wrong? Why can't I speak up on the poor diversity hiring in the NFL, not just with head coaches and GMs, but in its own offices? Why can't I be a leader in this regard? I mean, what this 27-year-old young man did at the time was made me look at myself like, what am I doing, right? I've got a platform use it and if the nfl or whomever wants to let me go because of it that's fine you can't silence me now so i pick my spots and i think i use them intelligently but i think i helped raise awareness inside of my building inside a league office uh, inside of my profession 
as to a lot of things that could be better, not only the hiring of black and brown people, but paying attention to the Polynesian communities, right? They make up a lot of, of what's going on in the NFL, paying attention to what's going on to women and women of color and, and, and people like that in our industry, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera. You know, the, this is this is what has to be better in some of the decision making processes. So to me, introspectively, that was the biggest offshoot of what happened with the Colin, Colin Kaepernick story is I became a better human being because he had the guts to make me rethink about what I was doing with my life. Oh, absolutely. I think all of us that were true to ourselves had an introspective moment to say, OK, what are we willing to sacrifice and not um, just by his stance and what he did and even as he evolved moving forward. Um, when you look at the landscape of the NFL, and I look at a lot of NFL reporters, I look at you, I look at Jim Trotter, obviously a countless others that uh, that that are in the, in the in the black media circuit and black community. But I noticed primarily, at least I've noticed, you, Jim Trotter, have always started to bring light on issues that you spoke about just a few seconds ago about not having enough opportunities for black head coaches, coordinators, upper management uh, positions. And dare I say, even ownership positions um, in, within the NFL with 32 teams. What at what point did you realize, OK, I know you talked about the Colin Kaepernick and you did an introspective look at yourself. But what point did you realize, OK, I got to go forward to the, forward with this and continue to go forward, come hell or high water. And then you have a guy like Jim Trotter, who you guys have had great chemistry together. My, my brother. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you guys really hit it head on when it wasn't popular as is as as it is right now. You guys did it before it became quote unquote popular to do. Well, look, I mean, again, you know, you see this gray hair. You know, I, I'm I'm kind of a sage that a lot of younger people in the industry ask questions of and, and advice of. And you know, you know, I, I got to tell them. You know, they're like, okay, when do I know when to speak up and this and that? I'm like, you got to be comfortable doing it, but you also have to have you know, kind of the kind of the skins on the wall to be able to say, it. you know, I've, I've covered this league for a long time. I, I know a lot of coaches of all ethnicities who kind of respect, you know, my my information gathering. And when I come into the building and sharing certain things with me. So when I say some things, it's not just necessarily emotional. Right. These are a lot of factual based conversations Jim and I have. But we're going to point out it's wrong. Why is Pep Hamilton, the developer of Justin Herbert, his quarterback coach, um, his rookie season with the Chargers? Why can't he get an OC job? You're right. He's coaching quarterbacks down with Houston now. Oh, Tyrod Taylor comes out the first game and kills it. Who's a quarterback coach? It's Pep Hamilton, but you're not hearing his name mentioned. You know, so these are things that we're going to continue to try to, to drive and, and Jim and, and others. And I think Jim and I have given, you know, some of the courage to other people, the Kimberly Martins of the world, you know, to, to join the Jamel Hills and, and carry champions and speaking their mind and speaking out on issues. You know, it's not just us. There's a lot of other people. Um, you know, this young woman, Megan Reyes, you know, who's, who's like this, the social media, you know, spokesperson for a lot of issues, including mental health. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people, it may, it may, you know, you may say, you know, it could be popular to speak on this, but I think it's important as long as you've got the credibility to say some things that carry some weight and, and some meaning behind it. No, absolutely. I mean, and then let me clarify when I say popular, because all of a sudden now it's, kind of the end thing, you know, right. four, four years ago, five years ago, when Colin Kaepernick and, and a few others were talking about it, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of hands offish. Because um, people saw Colin Kaepernick lose his career. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> but, you know, but, but when a lot of WNBA players and NBA players who got guaranteed contracts start joining the chorus and then you've got other people, the Malcolm Jenkins of the world and, and yeah. Michael Bennett, it's like, okay, a 
okay, you see what's happening now. He's given people the courage to to, to kind of stick yep. their necks out a little bit. I agree. What would the current Steve Weiss, what advice would he give the young Steve Weiss as he's coming into the industry? Well, the currency wise, well, the, the industry changed a lot because there was no internet <laughs> when I came into the industry. But the, I mean, honesty would be be who you were, continue you were, but know a lot more about things in terms of what's going on in the business, like the digital media world, right? You can't just do TV or writing now. You've got to learn some elements about what's going on in the digital world in terms of how to edit copy, do some of the things you do, Nick. You know, you hustle, you kind of one man band a lot of the stuff. You've got to have your tentacles out in multimedia world nowadays that's what i would tell young people like don't just think you're going to show up and do tv because people are watching stuff on their phones and things like that content yes but you've got to be very dimensional in what you do but what i would tell uh me more is as a as as a younger person is, is not much different i mean i think my experiences in my life have really shaped me you know maybe when i was coming out of high school you know hit hit the squat rack and bench press a little bit more but then i might have actually had a career at missouri never gone to howard none of this would have ever happened now, I got to ask you, Steve, because this is one of the shows that I thoroughly enjoyed. I tuned in every week because you guys kept it 100 all the way through. You guys were solid. You and Jim. When is the podcast coming back? Is it coming back? And if so, when is it coming back? Man, I loved it. Done. What? It's not coming back. Yep. Um, can't really say too much about it, but, um, you know, Jim and Thomas Warren, our producer and I, we, we love doing it. We, we gave voices to a lot of people. Um, we, we carved a lane in an avenue that the NFL and the NFL media has never had. Um, and frankly, it's a shame, um, that we're not coming back, but it's done. It's done. Hopefully Jim and I and Thomas can circle back again in some way, shape or form due to the powerful stuff that we did with the people that we did it with. But, uh, in terms of NFL podcast, save the archives, baby, because it, uh, it was, it was one and done. Well, you know, Huddle and Flow is a great podcast. I do hope one day uh, in the near future you guys can be able to pick that back up because I thought it was it was something that was much Appreciate needed you. in the industry, man. It was much needed in the, in the culture. It was you guys are riding for the culture for sure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that will continue to be the case no matter what. Absolutely, but thank you for kind words. Oh, I, I, uh, no question. Three quick questions. I'm gonna do a lightning round with you really quick, and then let you get on out of here because I know you're busy. Uh, so first and foremost. You were on an island by yourself, a private island. You can only take three albums with you. What would they be and why? Okay, so Ready to Die, because Biggie's that dude. Um, I'm probably going to take the new Wiz Kid, straight from Lagos, which is just absolutely off the chain. The Afrobeat sound is absolutely killer. And then probably the first Leon Bridges LP, just because that's really my lane, that kind of slow bluesy R&B. You know, I'd love to throw a Jill Scott album in there, but those three right there, I, I hit a lot of different genres and a lot of different flows. No, that's a, that's probably one of the most diverse lists I have heard on this <laughs> show as of yet, from the one and only Steve Weiss. Now, the second one I'm going to throw at you is, you have a million dollars. What would you do with that million dollars and why would you do those things with that million? Post to tax. The, to post, a, post after tax after taxes, you got a million dollars to impact the world. What would you do with it? Well, I mean, I would pay off my debts uh, because my wife would insist. <laughs> um, but no, frankly, you know, I I'd probably lo I'd love to do some stuff with the Brotherhood Crusade here in LA because um, they do such a great job doing stuff, and I would continue to tribute 
to uh, the, the group I work with, the Black College Football Hall of Fame, because we generate scholarships for a lot of these programs. We also highlight the greats of the past while also making people understand the importance of, of black colleges um, in, in the modern day world and how, again, they're not less. They're equal to or better than PWIs, and it should not be a fallback option. It should be your first option. You know what, Steve, talk to me a little bit about that, because I really want people to really understand how impactful and important HBCUs and, ha and players having the true opportunity to be looked at, to be scouted, to be observed heading into the NFL draft and the great work that you do and that, and that organization does to, to ensure that guys do get a proper and fair shake. Well, look, I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, you know, we have, we've only seen one player from black colleges draft over the past two years and you gotta be kidding me. I mean, their players are talent there. Um, and so we, it's our job to get these NFL teams to go to these campuses and to do proper scouting and to do proper scouting, you know, reports, you talk to these coaches, at these universities say, no, these NFL scouts, they may come through here, but it's a glancing blow whereas they can go to, you know, Sam Houston state or, you know, in Eastern Carolina and do far more thorough, um, you know, studies of players at similar size schools. So um, it's, it's just important that we do that, but I mean, not just the student athlete, it's the student as well. Again, there's kind of a Renaissance with HBCUs in part because LeBron, a lot of these people are talking about him, Chris Paul, Jimmy Butler, you know, we got J.R. Clark, playing golf down in North Carolina A&T. Um, but again, educationally, the vice president of the United States went to Howard. I mean, in my little in my little academic cluster at Howard, just from our journalism school alone, we had myself, Gus Johnson, Stan Verrett, you know, Gus from Fox, Stan Verrett from Sports Center, Michelle Miller, who's now at CBS. You know, Frederica Whitfield was a year ahead of all of us. But that's just in one cluster. I mean, we can make it out here in this world. Again, I don't see why HBCU should not be a first option instead of a fallback option. If you had three places to go in the world, what would they be? Where would they be, rather? Woo! You're killing me right now. Well, wine country somewhere. Okay. It could be in Italy. It could be in Napa. It could be in Solvang. So I'm just going to say wine country somewhere. Jamaica, where my wife is from. And then someplace I have never been, but I am dying to get to. And that's to the motherland. I want to go to Morocco. I want to go to Egypt. I want to go to Ghana, Kenya. South Africa, every place I could possibly go. Fantastic. Lastly, thing before I let you get on out of here, you've done a fantastic job to represent not only for yourself, but those of us who are in the media space, who are in the culture. Uh, how imperative and how important has always been in times prior, but especially now, how imperative is black media and black owned media getting opportunities to tell these stories and be able to cover and report these stories? Well, it's hugely important because, you know, a lot of people hear black owned media or black media and think that we only are interested in covering black people. Yeah, we want to amplify and highlight, but you'll also find a more sympathetic ear from black people to people of color reporting on Latino issues, reporting on Polynesian issues, reporting on Asian issues, you know, Native American issues, which is which is highly important in this country. And so. Mm -hmm. I think that's another reason why we need to be supportive and supported in what we do, because the mainstream media oftentimes don't touch these subjects until they impact what's going on in the mainstream world. I said, whereas we, you know, we tend to have a close association. You and I live in the same area of Los Angeles. It's a black and brown area. There are brothers, man. These are issues that are important to all of us, for all of us to live harmoniously and to succeed harmoniously. That's why it's important, because, again, we may be black owned, maybe black led. We have more of a sympathetic ear and I think a more of a tuned ear to all the issues to people of color that need to be highlighted and amplified. 
Truth spoken from the one and only Steve Weiss of the NFL Network and NFL.com. He does a great job covering the league. Please, sir, let everyone know where they can continue to keep up with you and follow you and all your great work. Yeah, Weich at Weich89, W-Y-C-H-E-89 on Twitter and Instagram. Hit me up on anything on NFL Network, but uh, you see me around. Absolutely, we will. Especially, with, uh, please post more pictures about those spreads that you're in because you're making us all one, 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 one more. It looked good, but I just saw about 400 <laughs> pounds and a whole bunch of place, brother. <laughs> I hear that, Steve Weiss, ladies and gentlemen, here on the NH Experience. Thank you so much, sir, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. You got it, Dick. All the best. Thank you. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the NH Experience, and I have a very special guest on this edition of the show uh he can be seen all over the nfl network you can find his great works of of creative writing and inside information all over the nfl.com site uh he's worked for such outlets as espn the, the san diego union tribune uh he's also reported extensively on player activism and social justice as he continues to do uh he does a great job as an nfl insider so all the information all the news that comes out this man definitely has what you need to know uh he's also co-authored a book at one time with cardinals wide receiver larry fitzgerald um and you can catch him weekly alongside steve weish on the huddle and flow podcast love the podcast uh it's great if you haven't checked it out it's available on all streaming platforms uh he's also from the west coast so we're definitely going to give him love for that and he's an hbcu graduate of the howard university ladies and gentlemen help me welcome the one and only jim trotter what's going on jim how you doing Doing, I'm blessed, man. I appreciate you having me, Nick. Oh, thanks for coming on. I know you're a very busy man, especially with the with the playoffs uh, that are upon us right now. So I want to get into a little bit before we all know the great work that you you've done and continue to do. But I want to take a, a step back a little bit. And in what, at what point did you discover that you wanted to be on this journey uh, of media and being in the, in, in the circle of reporting? Um, and then at what point did you realize, OK, the NFL is the lane that I want to definitely cover and be a part of and, and really get into the trenches of, of uh, developing myself as a reporter or yourself, rather, as a reporter? I, I, honestly, I, I kind of knew in high school that this was an avenue I wanted to pursue. The only issue was at that time, obviously, I was playing on, on teams, ball, baseball, those sorts of things. And you can't ride on your, your team. And so I never journal uh in high school but the minute i graduated i decided when i got college now i can go pursue it and so from day one that was kind of the track that i was on um what's interesting initially i had no interest in covering the nfl uh i was at the san diego union tribune i had worked my way up from high school to being um our nba writer and obviously we you know in san diego we didn't have or we don't have an, an nba team but what we do or what we did at that time is we would cover the L.A. teams, the Clippers and the Lakers, and then we would cover the playoffs and whatnot. So I really started to enjoy that after um, a couple of years. And so one year they said, hey, we want you to back up the Chargers for a year. And I was like, cool, because, you know, it really didn't interfere with my NBA work. And then the next year they were like, we want you to be the beat rock. And I was like, uh, I'm not so sure I'll do this. And the truth is, it was Nick Canepa, a columnist with the San Diego Union Tribune, who said to me, you really ought to give this a second thought. You know, the Chargers are the number one beat, not only in the sports department, but you could make the case at the paper. Or um, there's a lot of ability on it. 
There's a lot of responsibility with it, all those sorts of things. And so I decided, okay, I'll do it. And ultimately, it's the best decision I ever made from the standpoint that the NFL life fits so perfectly with a family life. Meaning, for instance, with baseball, you're not on the road, you know, weeks at a time. Um, with the NBA, it would be sort of the same thing if you were doing that and actually traveling. Um, with football, I could be home pretty much Monday through Friday and only have to travel on the weekend. So from a family standpoint and then from a work standpoint, it turned out to be the perfect decision. It's interesting that you said that because everybody thinks, and I'm glad you brought some some clarity to that because you actually were an NBA writer, which is interesting because um, everybody knows you for the NFL. So the right. fact that you made this move and you made that decision that pretty much changed the course of your life, um, I find that very interesting. And I'm glad you were able to expose that because I think a lot of young people who are trying to figure out what lane they want to travel in as far as the media circuit goes, um, you know, one decision can change your life and people that are watching. No, I I love the NBA. So I was enjoying it, but to be clear, I don't want to put myself in that lane with those guys who actually covered on a daily basis. I was like in and out, you know, when the Lakers would have a home game or the Clippers, or if I was doing a feature, I would go up, but I wasn't doing it every day, you know, and I wasn't traveling every day. That's so it was like, I was an NBA writer, but I wasn't an NBA writer, if that makes sense. Um, but I love the, what I loved about the NBA was that every day there was a different, you know, if you're covering games, every game is unique to itself and you could have a different protagonist, you know, you could have a different, um, uh, uh, topic that you want to focus on, whatever it may be. Whereas with football at times, I found it kind of mundane because especially if you have a bad team, you get to the middle of the season, you know, like I remember one year, you know, Chargers were started out on 11. And by the time it got to 11, it was, it was, I don't want to say fun, but it was interesting because then the, the question was, are, are they going to go on 16? And, um, but if, you know, three and eight and, you know, by Wednesday of that week, maybe Thursday, you kind of said all you want to see. And yet you still got a few more days to go there to fill in copies. So, that's what I loved about the NBA is, is, is sort of the immediacy of it, the opportunity to have different storylines every night with, you know, the NFL. It's like, man, can we just get to the game? Mm-hmm. Howard University. What was it about Howard University that you decided to go there? And then how did that shape you as well? Not just as a journalist, but as a man growing, growing into where you are now. Oh, man, we could be here all day talking about that. <laughs> the reality is, man, my my parents um, graduated high school. So college wasn't talked about a lot in my house. And it was actually one of my high school counselors who who really um, was sort of determined that I was going to go to college. And so at my high school, we had a black student union. And I was at the time living in Stockton, California, up in Northern California, in San Joaquin Valley. And they were having a state BSU, Black Student Union Convention, and it was held on the UCLA campus. And the forum was on historically black colleges and universities. I knew nothing about, again, because my parents hadn't gone to college. Like I said, they hadn't even graduated high school at that time. So I sat in on the forum and I was like, man, this just sounds in one of the schools that was up 
you know, um, on the dais was a representative from Howard. So I was like, and again, this is the spring of, you know, when I'm getting ready to graduate in, in what, less than a month or two. I'm like, I want to go there. So I applied and I got accepted, but I didn't have the money to go. So I said, okay. So I ended up going to Cal, what was then Cal State Hayward, which is now Cal State East Bay, and said, I'm just going to get my general ed courses out of the way, try and save some money, and then transfer. And so that's what I did. I spent two years at Cal State uh, Hayward. I transferred back to Howard. Uh, many of my credits transferred. And I was fortunate enough after a year to get an academic scholarship. So my tuition was paid every year. So that helped me um, get through school. But in terms of how I, Howard impacted me, I, I can't even begin to tell you. I, I can tell you this, that here we are, what I graduated in 1986. So we're almost, what, 40 years later, whatever. I, I can't do math. I'm terrible at math. But anyway, <laughs> almost four decades later, and if I had to do it over again, I would do it again. The thing when I got on that campus, I had gone to predominantly white high schools. I've gone to Cal State East Bay. And to get on a campus where everybody looked like me and where there was a nurturing environment where I didn't feel like I was just a, a, um, a number, where I felt like professors were actually invested in me and in, into whether I succeed or not, all those sorts of things. And then the students you're around, there is this, this commonality of, of experience to some degree, but also this desire to achieve, you know, and um, <laughs> it's just, there, there are no words. Howard University prepared me to be a journalist, to be a man, to be um, a contributor to society, all of those things. So if I had to do it all over again, I say right now, you know, the fact that I would say I would do it in a heartbeat without hesitation, I think speaks to my time there. A lot of people that I've spoken with that have gone to Howard have always sh shared similar experiences that you have as far as how they've developed the, the investment from not only the, the faculty, but just being in the, in the quad, being in the student union, um, and, and how it's been able to teach them so many valuable lessons uh, that they still use today. Um, you, you were obviously going to the San Diego Union Tribune. You later on went to ESPN. So how was your time at ESPN and what was that experience like for you? You know, what's funny is um, when I, I was at Howard, I was a journalism major. And my senior year, I decided that I didn't want to go into TV. Um, I wanted to be judged on the quality of my work and not on how I looked or how I sounded, those sorts of things, because I'm conservative by nature. I don't I don't I, there are risks I like to take and then risks I don't like to take. And so I decided I was going to go print and ended up working for the student newspaper um, that senior year. The thing when we had at Howard at that time, we had what we call a communications fair and media companies from around the country would come in and they would interview you know, prospective graduates for um, jobs as well as internships. So when I went through that process, knowing I didn't have a lot of print experience, I had two offers. I had one from the Cleveland uh, plane dealer, which was offering me a six internship, which they tell you can become a full-time job. And the other one I was offered was from the Muskegon Chronicle in Muskegon, Michigan, a small 50,000 circulation paper and they were offering me a full-time position. Well, I took the Muskegon Chronicle because again, my nature, my conservature, I wanted to go someplace where I could learn and, and I had a chance to, you know, if I'm gonna make some mistakes, um, I'm not gonna fail down, so to speak. 
And, and, and that's what I got there. I got a chance to do a lot of different things and to learn, start to my, my craft. So anyway, I'm telling you that as a patient. So I was there for like 10 months and I went to the morning news tribune in Tacoma, Washington, again, as a high school writer, did my thing there. And I get a call from, or there was a, an editor from, from, um, the San Diego union who came up to interview, uh, at our paper in Tacoma. And so what they did is they gave him like a week's worth of papers and said, we want you to critique these. And so he read them and, and, after he was, some of my work was in there and he went back to San Diego and said to the sports editor there, Hey, there's a high school writer up here. You might want to take a look at. So I get a call asking if I would be interested in interviewing. Well, I had never been to San Diego in my life. You know, I had never been on a plane until I went back to Howard. Went to my sports editor at the time in Tacoma. And I said, Hey, I'm getting a, a call from San Diego asking if I would be interested in interviewing. And and he looked at me with this smile and I'm like, what is that about? And he said, um, I'll never forget, he said, the closest thing to paradise on earth you're gonna find is San Diego. And I was like, really? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so I go down and I interview and then I see what he's talking about in terms of the ocean and the climate and all of that. So cool, I'm there. Well, I was there 18 years working my way up and actually thought I was going to retire there and had kind of, you know, I had had my kids, everything else. So I'm like, I'm good. And then Sports Illustrated had nothing. And as you know, Sports Illustrated is like the beacon when it comes to magazine writing for, for sports writing or really any writing. And I had never even once considered ever working there. And when this opportunity came up, it was like, well, you never know unless you take the chance. So I, I remember I reached out to them and ended up getting an interview, long story short, get the job and um, didn't feel like I measured up with the folks there. Cause I mean, these are people I had been reading for some time and the best of the best. And there was that transition um, when I was there. It's not unlike a, um, a football coach, you know, when you're a first time head coach, and you get into a place and all of a sudden, maybe you start to doubt yourself a little bit when things don't go right, right off the bat. And that was a little bit of me at, at Sports Illustrated where, you know, there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. Um, I'm working remotely. I didn't feel like I had sort of a, a tour and advocate will. And that's not to say that anyone was against me or anything. Sometimes stuff you get in your own head. You think about stuff right. too much and you create scenarios that aren't there. Um, but anyway, so I was there, you know, six and a half years. And then I ultimately I ended up being laid off because they were going public and they basically told me it's not performance. You just make too much money and we got to get lean to sell the magazine. So I'm like, wow, I've, I've never been laid off in my life before. And I didn't quite know how to handle it. Um, but here's a story for a young journalist in terms of the power of social media. So I remember it's like, okay, what do I do? And initially, there's this embarrassment, even though it's not your fault and it wasn't due to performance. You're you're unemployed now. Um, how do you handle it? You don't want you don't want people to know, but you do want people to know so that you can get you know try and get the next job. So I reached out to a few people uh, at different media. I said, hey, you know, I just got let go. I'm looking for something. And the beauty of it for me was within three hours, I knew I was going to be fine because I had four places that said, 
bring you in. We want to interview you. And ESPN was one of those. And um, the people there were great. You know, I spent, I'm trying to think, I think I spent three and a half, four and a half years there and, and um, work with some best people you could work with. But there was something more that I needed. I, I felt like I wasn't being used quite the way that I wanted or as often as I wanted. And I, at that point had sort of found my purpose of wanting to write and talk about um, justice issues as it related to players and trying to humanize players and get people to see that they're there's more to these guys than just football. And I thought, what better way to do that than on a 24-hour NFL um, platform, which was the NFL Network. And a friend of mine had worked there, and, you know, he was interested in having me there. And long story short, that, that's how I wound up at NFL Network. And um, to NFL Network's credit, and particularly, um, you know, my, my immediate boss, John Marvel, He's let me talk about the things that I want about and write about the things that I want to write about. And, and I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, one thing I will say, I mean, when I, I watched you on ESPN, that's the first, I think I was probably the first time I saw you and I'm like, Whoa, okay. They got a new face. Anytime there's a new face, everybody's like, okay, who is he? Especially if you're unfamiliar with the previous work at the time, you're always like, okay, who is the oh man? Let me check this guy. We see, we see another brother on TV. Like okay, let's see what he's what he's talking about. Yeah. You know, and you kind of get excited. You kind of get inspired, inspired rather. Um, and you talk about humanizing the players, and I think that's almost sometimes could be a lost art because a lot of times we're so focused on stats and whose player is the flashiest and who's the most popular. But you really had a, uh, did an outstanding, a do an outstanding job humanizing the players. How much did you receive you. any type of? Uh, I don't want to say pushback, but any type of, of resistance when you first started out to say, hey, I want to talk about social justice issues that pertain to my community, pertain to players that look like me. Was there any type of pushback or did you get full support when you initiated that that movement? Oh, there's, a, there's always a little um, or at least initially there was some. Um, remember, that was after Colin took a knee. It wasn't too long after it was a whole stick to sports crowd. And we saw how that was impacting media outlets and ESPN was not immune from that. And there were mandates from up above that, you know, let's try and focus on sport, limit our, our, um, our, our social media activity as it related to, to social activism and all those sorts of things. And, you know, one thing I try and pride myself on is that, look, I'm going to say what I have to say, but hopefully I'm going to say it in a way that's professional and not, um, gratuitous or out of line or those things. And I, I think for the most part, I do a pretty good job with that. I'm human. So I have my moments, where my emotions get me a little bit. Um, but, you know, at ESPN, one of the things I found that, you know, there was one in particular who, you know, a couple of different times said to me, you know, I kind of, I think you crossed the line and, and I'm, and I disagreed with him and said, I, I don't think I crossed the line. And, um, you know, and that, that was at a time where they were suspending folks and whatnot. So I really thought there might be a point there I would suspend it. And if I had been, I would have been comfortable with it because um, I felt like I didn't do anything wrong. And I felt like um, I was saying what else was thinking or willing to say for fear that there might be consequences behind it. And um, so, yeah, there was some of that. And even now, you know, no matter where you are, people get a little uncomfortable when you start going down that, that road. 
but again, I try and I, I, I try very hard not to just beat people over the head, but to try and shine a light on issues in a way that hopefully will make think a little bit and just say, you know, um, this isn't right, or we need to have a deeper discussion about this. I know you talked about being at ESPN and in your time there had ended, but I know you were also very high up when it came to the pro football writers, excuse me, of America, um, when you were doing a lot of great work with that. And then once you went to the NFL network, you were, you were told, Hey, I can no longer be a part of the pro football writers association, which I thought was incredibly mind boggling because I thought you will want somebody who's actually inside the league that knows the, the, the ins and outs to give some insight on what to, what to do moving forward. How did that affect you? And, and, and uh, how were you able to move on from that? Cause I'm, I, I mean, I can't imagine how that would affect me, especially with all the hard work that you put in. No, I appreciate it. I, it, it, I'm not gonna lie to you. That one hurt a little bit because I was fighting for us, meaning um, journalists. I was fighting for access. I was fighting for diversity and inclusion. Um, one of the things that I did as a pro football writers of, uh, of America president is that person gets to decide who the two pool reporters are going to be for the Super Bowl each year. And so um, traditionally, it has been two males who cover it, typically longstanding NFL writers. And which is fine. But I said when I came in, you know what? I want to give an opportunity to those who haven't had a chance. So I said, I want two women to be the pool report first year. And we ended up going with um, Nikki, who's now at the at the Washington Post at the time. I think she was working for the Denver Post. No, or the I can't remember if it was Denver Post or Rocky Mountain News, one of the two. But and you know, I just felt that it was important for young women to see that there are opportunities for them um, in this field of NFL writing. Uh, and, you know, uh, because I believe representation matters. And so one of the things I was fighting for or, or pushing to do in my second year was to develop a relationship with um, women's sports organizations to bring in more women to, to the organization and whatnot. So when they told me that I couldn't be president anymore because I was now working, um, I was now an NFL employee, I, I was hurt. I was disappointed because, I, again, I was fighting for the same thing that, that they're fighting for. And the irony of it is I don't get any, any, any more favorable access because I'm at the network than I did when I was at ESPN. Um, in fact, the access may have been better at ESPN. So it's just it's kind of ironic that, you know, I would be kicked out because of that. Uh, when again, all I was trying to do was continue to fight for everything that every other writer and, and media person was fighting for. Absolutely. I think what gets lost sometimes, and I, I mean, I've, I've only been doing this for about 11 years, and I've been in various locker rooms. I've been in various media uh, press boxes, as you have, of course. Um, but the one thing that I've seen that's pretty much decreased has been the the availability of black journalists, especially black owned media journalists uh, who have decided to go the independent route, not necessarily be connected to a major. Um, what have you, how important in today's society with everything that's going on? And we know this week with the whole uh, uh, influx of, of uh, these, what I call domestic terrorists that entered our, our U.S. Capitol building. Um, how important is black media in today's society in your estimation? 
Oh, I think I think density uh, period of all kinds is important. Um, you know, and and when we're diversity, I mean diversity of thought too. Not all mm-hmm. black people think the same. Not all white people think the same. Not all Asian people think the same. So, for me, diversity on all levels is important. But as we talk specifically to race, look, we have a locker room that's seventy percent black in terms of the players. Um, we have some shared experiences, which is not to say that we all grew up the same way, but being a black man in America, there are some shared experiences there. Diversity of all types matter to me, um, not just race. Now, I think you brought in an incredible point. I think diversity of thought, I think that needs to be explored more as well, because I, I agree. I think we all don't think the same, no matter what color or gender you happen to be. But I also noticed that there are a lot more opportunities for those to seem that don't look like us um, or get more chances for those that don't look like us. And we have to prove ourselves two to three times more. But I'm going to say this to you, Nick, and, and, mm-hmm. and I'm including myself in this here because I've written about sure. it. One of the things we have to understand is, particularly when we're young, those get involved and we want to be the person in front of the camera. We want to be the person with our picture in the newspaper on a call, all sorts of things. Because there's there's a lot of ego gratification and things that come with that. But the reality is the real power are the people you don't see. And that's the people who are sitting in the glass office and decisions on who is going to cover what, what the angle of that is going to be, whether it gets published, where it gets published, all those sorts of things. And so for us to have, in my opinion, to have more of us represented, we need to understand that we need more of us behind the scenes as well. And that includes in television as producers, you know, as, as management, those sorts of things. So it, it, it doesn't operate just in a vacuum, but I understand why maybe some young people might not think about going that road because that visibility of being in front of the camera and then you start thinking about the money you make and all those sorts of things. I can tell you there's money to be made behind the scenes, too, for the young people out there who are listening. So um, and a lot more security at times, too. So it's worth thinking about. No, absolutely. Fair point. Um, When you talk about also, too, there's been a lot, obviously, what's going on with social injustice, uh, with racial inequality, especially in the NFL, where a lot of teams have made statements about trying to be more diverse, tackle certain issues. you know, PSA, a lot of PSAs came out. Again, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I, I have to put that out there as far as a lot of PSAs um, coming out. Look, do you honestly do you honestly think anything will change as a result or will there be just enough change to pacify the audience? And then once this thing blows over or where they feel like it blows over, it'll go back to business as usual. The players and the owners, the players in the NFL through Inspire Change, the partnership between the Players Coalition and the NFL, they're doing the work outside in terms of trying to better things in, in, in players' communities and whatnot. And a lot of that headlines, but the work is being done. It's been ongoing for over you know four years now. Um, so are we seeing a change? I would say yes, but maybe not the type that's drawing the big headlines. When the players with the backing of the league can get voter reform where former felons are now able to vote some for the first time, including Michael Vick. That's huge. You know, that's something that helps change that, that can lead to change because I, I'm a firm believer that for change to really happen, it has to happen legislatively. 
because all that other stuff, if you don't have it in writing, as they say, it doesn't really matter. Um, when we're talking about football itself, um, look, the, this is, I've said this before and I will say it again. The diversity in the NFL is not about as it relates to coaches and general managers. It's not a league problem. It's not a league office problem. It is an ownership problem because owners are the ones who do the hiring. Okay. So the league office has tried to do everything it can to level this playing field, including, in my opinion, going the absurd step of trying to incentivize the process of hiring a minority coach. And I always say, if you have to incentivize something for someone to do the right thing, you've already done the wrong thing. That's how, that's what I believe. It doesn't make me right. It's just what I believe. Where I think the NFL can do better is that when you look at the league office, top 12 executives coming into the season, there were only two people of color. When you look at, at, at each of the 32 clubs, look at their um, executive uh, hierarchy. Many of them might have one, if none, people of color. When we had Arthur Blank on the podcast, Arthur Blank was talking about the importance of diversity and inclusion. And I had to remind him when I went on your team website this morning of your top 19 executives, there was only one person of color. That's not someone who, um, at least to that point, whose words match their actions. So I, that's one of the things I've tried to do uh, in the role that I'm in now is just say to people, look, words are no longer good enough. You're going to be judged on your actions. And I'm not afraid to have that discussion with you, you know, about why your actions don't match your words. And it makes people uncomfortable. And sometimes it probably gets me into trouble. But as John Lewis would say, the late John Lewis would say, it's good trouble. Yeah, see, that's one of the things I respect about you and, and Steve Weiss. You guys are un, unapologetically afraid to com, to confront those who need to be confronted, not to be controversial, not to get eyeballs and clicks, but to really get down to the heart of the matter. And that's one of the things many, a, a, a few people I've spoken with, but myself included, really appreciate about the Huddle and Flow podcast because you guys don't cut corners. You guys have fun. There's times you talk about really good stories and you bring a lot of things out, but you're not afraid to confront whether it's an owner, whether it's a general manager, whether it's someone, you know, a current player, former player, what have you, you always get to the root of the matter. And that is something that I, I always have a tremendous amount of respect. And I'd love to see that because that needs to happen. I don't think it happens enough in our society uh, to, to try to bring a solution to a problem that we say that's a problem. No, I appreciate that. That means a lot. The one I say to young folks is, look, Steve and I have been doing it a while, so we have a little bit of, of, of um, credibility on it, so to speak, built up when we talked. The other thing I would say to young folks who are coming into business and doing it, the one thing you don't want to do is simply attack people. You want to let you, you present them with the facts and the facts will say what needs to be said. I remember one time the charge looking for I was covering the I was a beat writer for the Chargers. And they were looking for a coach. And so the owner, they interviewed like five people for the job. The owner met with four of the candidates in person. The fifth candidate he did not meet with in person. And the fifth candidate happened to be the only person of color. So I remember I wrote it. And it wasn't a headline or anything. It was just in my notebook. And I'll never forget the, the team calling my boss 
and even going above the sports editor to the editor of the paper because it was upset, essentially saying I was calling them racist. And my point was, I'm not calling them anything. I'm just presenting the facts. I don't need to say anything. And that's why my paper stood behind me on it. And there was no issue. I'm not calling you anything. You must. And there's a saying that a, a wounded dog yelps loudest. So clearly I must have touched nerve. But the fact that you would treat the one person of color differently than you treated the four other candidates who were all um, non-Black, I don't have to say anything. You have to answer for that. So that's what I'm saying. Gone out and written and said, man, you know, this racist team or whatever, whatever. Now mm -hmm. I've made myself the story. And that's the thing as a journalist you want to do. You just want to let the, you know, speak for themselves unless you're a columnist. And that's a totally different thing. Absolutely. Hit dog on holler. So let's get let's. I want to ask you, too. How did you and Steve Weiss join forces and create the Huddle and Flow podcast? How did that come about? How long have you two known each other? Um, and how you how how have you both developed that chemistry with each other? Um, well, Steve, Steve and I have known of each other for. Obviously, we both went to Howard. I left before I got there. Um, and I, I knew of him from afar because he, he was doing great things with the Miami Herald and the Washington Post and all of that. And then, obviously, he went to NFL Network or he went to the AJC and then the NFL Network. So, you know, I was a fan of his work. And so we knew of each other, but we really knew each other. Well, by the time I got to um, NFL Network, we said, hey, we should do a podcast together. You know, two black men from Howard City, excuse me, et cetera. So we went to the powers that be with it. And they appeared to be interested, but it just died on a vine. You know, it went nowhere. Um, it was never done. So we figured, you know what? They're not going to let this happen because obviously we were going to bring our own flavor to it. And, and then after, you know, the George Floyd murder, when all of a sudden the entire country was woke and people were dealing with these issues and, and the discussion of diversity and inclusion and all of that came up, they came to us and said, remember that podcast you guys were talking about? Are you interested? And so we kind of looked at each other and laughed a little bit and we're like, look, you know, yeah, we're interested, but if we do it, we're going to do it from our perspective with our flavor and we're going to be honest about whatever it is we're talking about. And that's kind of how it goes. So when it comes to the pod and, and even with guests, you know, we just say, hey, who do we want? Who would we want to talk to? You know, just have a conversation with. And that's kind of how it works. And if there's a spe specific topic we want to get on, then we'll try and find guests for that specific topic. But for the most part, it's just, you know, who's interesting that that we feel the listeners would be interested in hearing from you know and that's a beautiful thing when you have a network of that caliber to, to entrust you all and to be able to to back away so to speak and let you all just kind of drive the bus and be able to allow yourselves to really be you know personable where people can feel like they can relate to you and you bring on guests like you said that you want to talk to that, that you feel like also the fans will want to hear from and people yeah. want to know about um, you got you guys had some illustrious guests. You talked about Arthur Blank, the owner of the Falcons earlier. I noticed you guys had uh, uh, Sean Payton on at one point. He really dropped some gems. And then you had Michael Vick on. 
uh, as one of your other guests. But with all the guests that you've had, who has been the most interesting guest thus far that's appeared on the Huddle and Flow podcast? Oh, man, that's hard to say because we've had we've had great guests. I mean, and, and I'm not saying that to pat us on the back. I'm just saying people have been gracious enough to come on and, and share their stories with us and whatnot. I mean, I go back to week one with Ron Rivera when it's week one of the NFL season and you got a coach who's battling cancer and to come on and talk, you know, candidly about what he's dealing with, um, how it's affected his family, losing a brother to cancer. How does he tell his mother about it? You know, that he's been diagnosed, all these sorts of things. Um, it started right there. And then, because it was funny, we were only going to do one show a week. And then we just were like, man, there's so many people we want to talk to that all of a sudden it just morphed into two a week. And then we were like, we wanted to do more. We can't do more. We got a job to do. We got a day job, you know? So, um, but you go from there to Doug Williams and Jerry Rice and Larry Fitzgerald and, you know, Soledad O'Brien and, and Lindsey Davis and Jamel Hill and Kerry Champion, you know, Michael Holly and, and, and Michael Smith, um, you know, uh, John Lynch, uh, John Schneider, um, I mean, God, I'm leaving people off, but it's just, they all have something unique to them. So they're all good. Uh, Maya Wiley, the, the, um, who's running for mayor of New York, found her to be fascinating. Chuck D spent eight hours with Chuck D and it wouldn't have been enough, you know? So all of these folks we so appreciate. And we also try and, and shine a light on people that, that the community might not know very well yet because they're still maybe up and coming or they're in an area you might not know. So you get a football player like Jesse Bates, who's one of the emerging safeties in the NFL. Or you talk to James Lopez, who's the president of Will Packer Productions, and they're doing a biopic on Doug Williams. And he's a guy that was responsible, helped put together movies like um, Girls Trip or The Photograph or What Men Want, those sorts of things. So I'm saying that to you. The question you're asking me is like asking me, which of my children do I love most? I can't answer that, man. You know, all of you know, we talked about um, a lot of different things, but I wanted to get your perspective. Um, we talked about what we saw, what happened with the Capitol building uh, uh, this, this earlier uh, in the week. And to me, it just seemed uh, we heard a lot of NBA players speak about. We heard Draymond Green speak very candidly and openly. We heard uh, Steve Kerr. Kawhi Leonard, uh, Jalen Brown from the Celtics, so many NBA players that really have come out and, and really spoken about uh, that issue and that issue that's been prevalent. And we know in our communities, but now the world gets to see it. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. And, and you know, how did that affect you uh, directly? How did it affect your family? Because I know a lot of people talk about how their kids witnessed that and how their kids were starting to have some type of anxiety, you know, warning, hey, is this going to come directly to our front door? So how did you how did you deal with it and how did you discuss that with your family? Well, the good thing for me, my kids are grown, so um, I didn't have to worry about having, you know, deal with anxiety of, of a young kid. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it, it affected how there are two Americas. It was creation or affirmation or, or just um, illustrative of how there are two Americas, because we both know that if that is black movement or that had been black norm in the capital. Um, they would not have lied that, that those white folks did. And that's just the reality of it. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I grapple with is I struggle with us now getting applause or praise 
or credit to people who are now distancing themselves from this president who for four years basically enabled him. And when you see all the things that have gone on during in this country for four years and you kept your mouth shut or you voted to support what this administration was pushing, um, I'm not quick to forget that. That's just me. So um, <laughs> I'm still blown away that that what is supposed to be the people's house, what is supposed to be the most secure buildings in this country um, could just be run over like that, you know, and, and essentially nothing is done. Not only that, you have members of, you know, are supposed to be protecting it, pulling back there, taking selfies with the people who are, are, are committing federal crimes. I mean, let's not forget that these are federal crimes. And then when it's over, even after the National Guard comes in, as they are coming out, instead of saying, we're arresting you right here, just let them go. Just let them walk by. You and I would have never been able to do that. You and I never would have walked out of that building alive. And that's just the reality of it. And I think, I think people are, are, I hope people are starting to recognize that now. Now, where we go from here, I don't know. Um, because all this talk about working together and kumbaya and this is not America. No, this is America. You just chose not to see it. And until we deal with the real history of this country, I don't know how it gets better, you know, because this country was founded on violence. Um, and this country was founded on white supremacy, you know? So anyway, I know I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, this stuff, but it is what it is. Truth is the truth. And like I say, I only say it from the state. Okay, can we start from there? And if we can start from there, then maybe we can start to have make progress. Absolutely. Um, Want to get your last take on who's going to be playing in Tampa Bay in February Super Bowl? What teams do you have in there? Who do you see? Who do you like? Uh, what are your thoughts and predictions on that? Boy, um, I think it's playing as well as any team. Uh, in the league right now, and who thought Green Bay was going to take a step back this year? Because the one thing that we saw last year is that when the Packers run into physical clubs, they tend to take a, they tend to, to to lose. I mean, to be quite frank, the 49ers beat up on them twice last year. They basically out physical them, and so when I see what Green Bay did to, to Tennessee, and I see the way that this offense now is clicking, and the way the defense went a tough out and that's why i'm fascinated to see uh what's going to happen there be me, very... i'm sorry who's who's in the finals if i yeah. had to choose right now i mean the obvious ones you would say is kansas city and green bay the two number one seeds but weird things always happen in the playoffs so yeah definitely real quick 30 seconds who do the Chargers pick as the next head coach i have no idea <laughs> don't know Hey, you know what? Uh, your guess is good as mine, sir. You are the ins you are the, the great NFL insider. Thank you so much to one and only Jim Trotter. Appreciate your time and gracious enough to join us here on the NH Experience. Please let everyone know where they can see you to keep up and follow you with all your great work, sir. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm on NFL.com, social media, <clears throat> excuse me, Jim Trotter underscore NFL. And um, that's about it, man. I'm, I just I was trying to stay under the radar and do my thing and you know hopefully people respect it and that's all i can ask for
absolutely. Well, you know, your work is definitely respected. You're respected as a, as a person. Definitely, and definitely inspiring to our community, man. So thank you so much for pushing the culture forward, for doing what you do um, on your end and, and really just opening eyeballs to things that need to be uh, open, you know, eyeballs that need to be open and eardrums that need to be open to listen. So thank you for all of your work and your time. I appreciate you. It means a lot. Talk to you soon, sir. I'm sure I'll see you sometime around the, the press box areas. Let's hope, man. Let's get this pandemic controlled. We can all get back out and do what we love to do. Because this, this is killing me, man. Truly. Wow. This will be the first Super Bowl I've missed, I think, since 98. Because I'm, I'm just not going. I'm not putting myself in harm's wow. way. Yeah, man, I said so. the same thing. I understand. Yeah. I'm, I'm zoomed out. <laughs> No, they were like, you can go to the Super Bowl. I said, for what? To sit in the hotel room and do Zoom calls with the players in a state that doesn't even recognize COVID? I'm like, no, no. Yeah, I do it from my from my couch, man. So there you go. House shoes on and on. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, yeah. Jim. We'll talk to you soon. Right, Have a good one. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.